please take your Bibles and turn to uh, the book of Jonah. Book of Jonah, we will, um, we will be looking at the remainder of chapter 1 this morning. Uh, I want, that's verses 4 to 17. Um, but I want to ask uh, the Lord's blessing on our time in his word, so if you'd join me in prayer. Father, we now open your word, well, again, to hear from you, uh, but this time to hear uh, the teaching of it. And so, Lord, I ask that you would just grant to me uh, wisdom, um, understanding, help me to speak uh, the truth of your word and uh, not my own wisdom, that your people, Father, this morning might be blessed and built up and strengthened and equipped uh, to live the life that you've called them to live for your glory in this world, and that they might be, and I might be, more and more conformed into the image of your Son. Uh, bless your word as it goes forth. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So Jonah, um, it's been a couple weeks now, but I just want to remind you in the, from the introduction that we had a couple of weeks ago to remind you that the whole book of Jonah is really a picture. It's a picture, a prophetic picture that God gives uh, really of Israel, um, Israel being obstinate before the Lord. Even as he was showing them mercy, Israel continued to rebel and be obstinate. And so God's loving kindness was really meant to lead them to repentance, as is, as is meant for everyone. But his people, Israel, were taking his mercy and his grace for granted. Israel was keen on boasting of themselves as a holy people. They were committed to the outward sign of circumcision as a symbol of God's covenant with them. Yet they despised all the prophets that God sent to them and they went their own way. Israel relied on their own wisdom and their own power and plans. And in the final analysis, Israel was not being the light of God unto the Gentiles in word or in deed, which God had called them to be. And so Jonah is a prophet that God puts before them in this whole story of Jonah as a prophet who exemplifies the guilt of Israel before the Lord. That's what Jonah does. Jonah exemplifies the guilt of Israel before the Lord for not carrying out what they have been called to do in the world. But it's also that Jonah is a reminder to them of something very specific that they were to know and to preach and to teach. And he was also a reminder to them that, number one, that God is the one who is sovereign in salvation. And God's mercy and compassion is for all sinners, for Jew and Gentile alike. And so Jonah, the whole story, reminded Israel of that truth. And secondly, it is a reminder to them that since God has a heart of compassion for Gentile sinners of the world, that they too should have the same compassion toward them. And so while this is a book given for Israel to remind them of these things, it is also a book that is given to us to remind us of those very same things. That God calls us as his people to obey his word, to be holy as he is holy, and that God is the God of salvation that we proclaim, and that message is to go out to the entire world, Jew and Gentile alike. And if God has mercy on sinners and desires to see them saved, then should that not be true of us, right? We should have that same desire. And so really the account of Jonah began, which we looked at last time in verses 1 to 3. And God gave Jonah a clear command. His word was clear. His calling for Jonah was clear. But as we saw, Jonah in his flesh did not want to do it. 
He didn't understand why God would desire him to go to Nineveh, a prophet of Israel, to go to a Gentile city of Nineveh and preach judgment to them and repentance to Israel's enemies. And so Jonah chose to disobey the word of God, and he found himself on the run from God. And so as a result, we saw Jonah found himself in his disobedience descending deeper and deeper into it. He's running further and further from the presence of God, and the more that he ran, the further down Jonah went. Remember, we closed with that last time. The more he tried to hide, the deeper he fell into the clutches of sin. Jonah, it says in chapter 1, verse 3, went down to Joppa. In verse 5, it says he went down into the inner part of the ship. He went and lay down to sleep. And then in chapter 2, verse 6, he went down into the depth of the sea. Such an apt picture of disobedience. God says, arise in obedience, Jonah, and go to Nineveh. Proclaim the message I give you to take to Nineveh. But instead of arising and going, Jonah flees and goes further and further down into disobedience, just like Israel. The more they ran from God, the further and deeper into sin they went. And it reminded me of Christian in Pilgrim's Progress when he found himself in the slough of despond. Uncomfortable and painful place to be when you run from God. Now here is the good news, beloved, for us. And the good news as it was for Jonah. And the good news is that the Holy Spirit never abandons his children in that condition. God disciplines those that he loves so that they learn from their errors and so that they emerge from the slough of despond more sanctified than before. If they belong to him, God will always discipline his children to bring them out of that disobedience Discipline is an act of mercy and love toward God's children. Here's how Hebrews 12, 6 to 8 puts it. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And so Jonah chapter 1, now verses 4 to 17, is actually going to reveal to us God's discipline of Jonah, and it's meant to teach Jonah a lesson and to teach Israel a lesson, as we'll see later, in the coming weeks. And yet, in this discipline of Jonah, God acts to show him mercy by saving him from the judgment he deserved. So those are really the two points this morning. Jonah is disciplined by God, chapter 1, verses 4 to 16, and God shows Jonah mercy, verse 17, by saving him from the judgment he deserved. And that was the message he was supposed to take to Nineveh, right? He was supposed to take a message to Nineveh, a message of mercy to sinners in the face of impending judgment. That's what he was disobeying. And now God is going to bring him through the very thing that he refused to proclaim in Nineveh. Jonah needed to learn this truth that God is merciful to sinners in the face of impending judgment. So let's hear chapter 1. As I read God's word, let us hear Jonah. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, 
Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to the dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, And lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This concludes the reading of God's word. Now, why do I say this is a disciplining of Jonah? Well, primarily because he had just disobeyed, and God always disciplines his children. But you also notice the way that Jonah puts it is that who hurled the storm? God hurled the storm. And he didn't just hurl a thunderstorm, but he hurled a great wind, more like, you might say, a mini hurricane upon the sea. And a mighty tempest from the sea came upon them, so much so that the ship was at risk of breaking up into pieces. So God hurls this sea and one, this storm, and one of the things you know about God's word if, as you read it, especially in the Old Testament, is that storms and seas are often used to portray God's judgment and wrath in the scriptures. So if you read in the Old Testament, you often see the Old Testament referring to storms and seas as God's judgment and wrath. And I'll just note a couple here before you, but we'll look at one in particular. But Psalm 69, verses 1 to 2, and verses 14 to 15. Psalm 83, verse 15. Isaiah 29, verse 6. Amos chapter 1, verse 14. And I could go on, but but these verses all speak about God's judgment and wrath, and it displays them and speaks of them in, in the terms of God's throwing or bringing a storm of judgment upon the individuals. But I think the one that's I found most related to this is from Jeremiah 23. And you can turn there. We'll read a couple of verses here. Won't spend a whole lot of time. But in Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 19 to 20, and also in chapter 25, verse 32, 
If you read Jeremiah, what you'll find in this passage in particular is that God is rebuking the false prophets of Israel and the evil which is being manifested among the people of Israel. And, and he's warning them of the coming judgment. And so in Jeremiah 23, verse 14, God says, He has seen a horrible thing. The prophets commit adultery and they walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his evil. He, he says they are as Sodom and the inhabitants of the land as Gomorrah. And then you'll see at the end of verse 15, from them, from these false prophets, he says ungodliness has gone out into all the land. So in other words, because of these false prophets, the land was poisoned with their falsehoods. And then in verse 17, he says, They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. And so the land became full of these false prophets whom God did not send. And then you see in verse 18, God says of these prophets who are not speaking his word faithfully, who are false prophets, he says, For who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and to hear his word? Or who has paid attention to his word and listened? Behold, the storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intents of his heart. In the latter days, you will understand it clearly. And in Jeremiah 25, verse 32, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, disaster is going forth from nation to nation, and a great tempest is stirring from the furthest parts of the earth. And so here, Jonah, he's manifesting both the disobedience of the prophets as well as the disobedience of Israel. He is a picture of what is to come in greater numbers later on as God ultimately judges Israel, the northern tribes by Assyria and the southern tribes by Babylon, which is what Jer Jeremiah is referring to. And so he's manifesting this disobedience of prophets and Israel because he refuses to proclaim the word of the Lord as directed by God. He doesn't want to warn the city of Nineveh of the coming judgment so that they might know God's mercy. And so the storm is this apt picture of God judging and disciplining Jonah. Both prophets and people who believed that no, no disaster would come upon them and that all would be well with them even as they disobeyed. And if Jonah wasn't going to proclaim God's judgment to Nineveh, God was going to show him that you must proclaim my judgment to the nations as I told you. And I will judge you and then I will show you mercy, Jonah, as I intend to show to Nineveh. Now, as I was reading that and I was studying it, I really, I couldn't help but think about the condition of our, of our own country. And to think about the condition of many of our churches in, in the country in which we live. Because it seems to me that false prophets and false teachers are abounding in many churches. And I don't, I don't say that lightly, and I don't say that because, because I think that we as a church have got everything together perfectly, because we don't. But the reality is, when you listen to some of these teachings and preaching that, that come from these churches, what you'll find is many of them promote 
or at least don't even speak against sexual immorality. Adultery is often rampant in churches, even among preachers. You've noticed even lately, a lot of preachers are falling into sexual immorality. Um, lots of lies are being proclaimed from pulpits. The gospel is being undermined. Hands of evildoers are being strengthened as lifestyles and choices which are contrary to God's word are more and more defended and promoted. You can see churches that accept homosexual marriage as valid and rather than the God-ordained institution between one man and one woman, and churches are just going along with it. And you find churches that are defending and promoting um, things that are completely contrary to God's word. Evil is called good and good is called evil in the name of love and tolerance. While God's truth in regards to these things and the judgment that he speaks against them is often neglected. It's often neglected. And you know what is said in place of the truth of God's judgment on unholiness and ungodliness? It will be well with you. That's what's said. It'll be well with you. No disaster will fall upon you, church. No matter how immoral or how ungodly things may be within the walls of the church, let alone outside in the world, these false prophets and false teachers tell people it will be well with you. And God's word says, no, it won't. God's word says that God is going to bring judgment on the evil that has risen up before him. God's word says that those who live in ungodliness and wickedness and who continue to strengthen the hands of evildoers in that capacity will be judged along with them. But you see, our preachers and our teachers in our churches, they want to shy away of saying how that same God of love and mercy, that same Jesus who came to save sinners, is the same God and same Savior that brings judgment and the wrath of God upon all those who refuse to repent. Jonah didn't want to preach that message. And I think there is a tendency in our own day where people don't want to preach that message. Now, by preaching that message, I don't want you to misunderstand me. It is not about going out into the world and picking fights with people and telling everyone to their face, you're going to hell, you're going to hell, and being combative with people. That, that is not what it means to preach that kind of message. I often think about the example, which I, I've shared with you before, I think, but when I was in El Camino College, I was a junior college, and there were these guys outside preaching hell and damnation to people, and they were holding up big signs and that said, you're going to hell. And so they would talk to people and yell at them and pick fights with them, essentially, and calling God's wrath down upon them. And so I found, I found myself going over there as young, like 19, and trying to help the people that are crying and distraught to show them God's grace and mercy in the midst of what's being said. And so I talk a lot with my hands. It's just my Romanian-European background. And so it turns out as I was talking to this young, this young lady, my friend calls me and says, come, come out over here. And he calls me out of the group, and so I, I come out of the group. I'm like, what? He goes, you, got, you, you better not associate with those people. And I'm like, well, I'm trying to speak the truth here. And he says, yeah, but they're going to put you in line with them. And so sure enough, in the newspaper and the next day, they have me with my hands talking to this girl, and a sign behind me says, you're going to hell, and God's pouring his judgment. So that... That is not 
That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that God wants us to speak truth in a sea of lies. God wants us to be faithful when it comes to calling sin, sin, and describing things from God's word the way that God describes them. And if God says that sinners, apart from repentance and faith in Christ, will be judged for eternity if their sin is not covered and they will face judgment, we need to be faithful to tell that to people. We cannot take it upon ourselves to present Jesus as a only a loving and merciful and tolerant God who only wants the best for people and your best life now. And Jesus is, all we say about Jesus is that he's loving and kind and gracious, which is all true. But if we present a Jesus to people, that basically means that Jesus will meet your every need, and we never tell them that this Jesus is the one who will judge the living and the dead if they refuse to come in obedience to him, then we are not presenting a full gospel at all. We are presenting half a gospel, and half a gospel is no gospel. It must be the full message, and we must be bold enough in the world in which we live to speak the truth even when it doesn't settle well on the ears of the world. And the reason is, is because if we don't speak that part of God's gospel message, the part of judgment, then people will not be compelled to turn from their evil and to seek deliverance from the judgment that is coming upon those who refuse to repent of their sin. Does that make sense? If they do not hear that there is a judgment coming, there is no good news needed for them because they are living in the world in such a way where they think that everything is fine in life and I'll take Jesus as long as Jesus helps me get more things in this life. They never hear the bad news if they refuse to repent of that rebellion and they're not compelled to come to God for mercy. I think part of the downward moral spiral that our nation is currently going through in a very real sense is related to God's judgment on us. And perhaps we need to see, to see it as that so that we wake up to the fact that by and large, it may be due to the fact that we have neglected to speak the hard truths to the world in which we live. And that's what Jonah was doing. Jonah, representative of Israel who was judged by God, refused to speak the hard truth of judgment coming upon Nineveh. Even though it's that preaching through which God would ultimately show them mercy. And so God sends this storm of judgment and discipline on Jonah and those in the ship to show them that what awaits those under God's judgment, to show them what awaits them. And so we read this in verse 5. As this storm comes, it says, Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us 
that we may not perish. And so you see here these sailors in this representative of the world, apart from God, not knowing the God of Israel, they are crying out to their gods for deliverance, which is totally ironic, considering the difference between their response as pagans crying out to some supernatural God that they don't know, and Jonah's response of hiding and running away from what God told him. You see, Jonah ignored the reality of the Lord's omnipresence and omnipotence over his own life circumstances by running away, thinking he's going to get away from God. But the sailors, in their mind, even though they, are not, they don't know the identity of the sovereign God of the universe, they know that in the midst of their chaos, there is some supernatural power or being that they have to give an account to. The world knows it. As dark as the world is, the world knows that there is a God that they will have to give an account to and that will ultimately bring judgment on them. The problem, as Romans 1.18 says, is not that they don't know it. The problem is that the world does what? They suppress the truth. They suppress the truth and they're in their unrighteousness, even though deep down inside they know they're living in rebellion. They have suppressed it to such an extent that unless, some, unless someone tells them that they are living under the judgment of God, they will just continue to suppress that truth and live in darkness. Paul says that God gives them over to their depravity. He gives them over to a futile mind. He gives them over to a darkened heart. He gives them over to the lust of their hearts. He gives them over to dishonorable passions. He gives them over to a debased mind. They are darkened and cannot see their right hand from the left and the natural result of it is chaos. They know they will have to give an answer when judgment comes. But as verse 32 says in Romans 1, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. And so I think here the sailors are that picture of a world that knows that they are going to face judgment if they don't find mercy. And Jonah was supposed to tell them. And so as their lives fall apart and the ship crumbles under the weight of God's judgment, all they can do is cry out each to his own God. And they hurl the cargo out of the ship in much the same way God hurls the storm their way because they are so desperate to find some kind of hope and mercy. They thought that perhaps they could lighten the ship enough to fight against the winds and row back to shore. But it's no use. Because when God acts in judgment, there's nothing man can do to escape it. And so the captain finds Jonah sleeping, spiritual apathy, so busy sinning that he's tired and has to lay his head to rest in the ship as the ship is sinking and God's judgment is whirling around them. And Jonah's shameful rebellion is actually exposed to these Gentile sinners because you'll notice again the irony here that the Lord rebukes Jonah through the mouth of this pagan captain in verse 6. The Lord had said to Jonah, arise and go to Nineveh. And here the captain calls Jonah to arise from his slumber. Arise and call out to your God. Something Jonah should have been doing all along rather than running. And so the pagans cast lots, it says in verse 7, and they hope for the best because they're so desperate. It says they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. God had directed it. 
Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What's your occupation? Where do you come from? Where is your country? Of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And so I want you to notice there in that, those four questions that were asked of Jonah. Do you notice that he answers every single one of them except the first question? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? His answer, I'm a Hebrew. In other words, I come from Israel, I'm of the nation of Israel, and I'm an Israelite. What is your occupation? Did he answer it? No. Why doesn't he answer that he's a prophet of God? Why doesn't Jonah answer that he is a spokesman for God? And the reason Jonah, I think, doesn't answer it is because he's ashamed to call himself a prophet of God. He's ashamed to call himself a spokesman for God when all the while he is refusing to speak the very message that God had called him to speak. And I think there are parts of us, beloved, that in our disobedience, when someone asks you, if you are living before them a disobedient life and they ask you, are you a Christian? Are you a follower of Jesus? The more that we refuse to speak of Christ into the world, the more that we will clamor. And when they ask us that question, like Jonah, we're not going to answer. Now to Jonah's credit, he admits that he was fleeing from the Lord. He acknowledges his sin. He accepts the consequences of his disobedience. As Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death, and Jonah knows it. And so the sailors, being exceedingly afraid, they're searching for mercy from God. They want to be delivered from impending judgment. And so the sea grows more and more tempestuous, and they ask Jonah, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? In other words, can you help us? Can we be delivered from this storm? Can your God show us mercy, Jonah? I love this. I love the way this points us to Christ. Jonah says to them in verse 12, distraught, I think, ashamed. He says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. And nevertheless, the men being more honorable than even Jonah want to show him mercy. The men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not because the storm was so great. And so not wanting to kill this prophet of God, they try to deliver him, but they can't. And so therefore, they are left with no recourse other than to consent to Jonah's request. And as a result, they throw Jonah into the sea, and the sea calms down at once. And the sailors worshiped God by offering him a sacrifice and making vows to him. The sudden, the sudden calming of the raging sea was probably more inspiring than the storm itself. Can you imagine being in a hurricane in a storm and you throw a man into the sea and then the raging stops? It just stops. God's judgment is lifted. The men are safe. They can breathe. They can see clearly. That's what God does when he lifts judgment. But Jonah, while he was thrown into the sea and God showed mercy to the Savior, or to the sailors, Jonah's decline now is complete. And he descends into the depths of Sheol, and Jonah's decline results in the ascending of the sailors from superstition to faith. Were the sailors really genuinely saved? 
I don't know. But you know what? We'll find out. One day, we'll find out if they are there. God knows whether or not they truly believed. But one of the things those sailors came to know is what? That God is a God of compassion and mercy towards sinners who are under his judgment. God shows mercy to sinners who are under his judgment. And that's the message Jonah was to bring. But he didn't. And so now God is going to teach Jonah about his mercy. You see, Jonah knew what he deserved. He declines into the sea. The wages of sin is death. God is disciplining his child as he's disobedient, and now he's thrown into the sea. And in the midst of Jonah's disobedience and God's discipline of Jonah, God shows him mercy in a very unusual way. He sends a fish to swallow him. Verse 17. And the Lord appointed... Remember, he hurled the sea, but he also appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. People tend to see the fish, maybe you did, as an instrument of the Lord's judgment. When, in fact, the fish was the very means by which our Creator saved Jonah from certain death, right? Readers, they, they, like, they likely interpret the fish as God's judgment because Jonah says, while in the belly of the fish, he spoke of crying to the Lord out of the belly of Sheol. But when you look at the context, Sheol is just a common Old Testament term for the grave. And so Jonah was cast into the sea because of his sin to save the lives of the sailors on the way to Tarshish. But the churning waters were not a safe place for the prophet. They throw him in. And he begins to sink down into the sea. And chapter 2, verse 35, speaks of the waters closing in to take his life, the seaweed wrapping around his head, the flood surrounding him. And so he is sinking and he is dying in the sea because of his sin. And in God's grace, the Lord rescues Jonah from the grave, the pit, even though he deserved to die. And so God saves Jonah and shows him mercy and compassion. God demonstrated his mercy in this chapter to everyone involved, to the sailors and to Jonah. And as we will see, he's going to demonstrate it ultimately to Nineveh because the true God is gracious and merciful slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Now, I'm going to close with this. Where and in whom have we seen such mercy displayed? We have seen it most perfectly manifested in our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one to whom Jonah he is the God whom Jonah was to proclaim. He is the one that ultimately redeems us who are under judgment. Do you remember in Mark 4, kind of a parallel to Jonah where the disciples are in the boat with Jesus? Like Jonah, Jesus was asleep in the boat while the lives of his terrified and helpless companions are at risk of a life-threatening storm. And like Jonah, Jesus is awakened by them for pleas for help. And like Jonah, he calms the sea and his companions are saved. And afterwards, like in Jonah, the companions respond with fear and wonder at God's sovereign power. Do you remember that? Luke, Mark chapter 4. But here is the difference between our Lord and Jonah. Unlike Jonah, who is worn out and asleep because he's running from God, 
Jesus asleep on the boat is exhausted from doing the will of God. Unlike Jonah who slept because he was indifferent to God's control, Jesus slept because he knew God was in complete control. Unlike Jonah who had no control over the storm of judgment which could have killed him and the others with him, Jesus was in control of the storm and the well-being of his disciples the whole time. And unlike Jonah, who revealed the Lord as the creator of the winds and the waves to his companions as he's cast into the sea and the storm ceases, Jesus revealed himself to be the Lord of the wind and the waves, and his disciples marveled at him. And here is the most important most important, beloved, unlike Jonah, who revealed to his companions that salvation belongs to the Lord and then went on to proclaim this message to Nineveh, Jesus showed that that salvation which belongs to the Lord is only found in him. Jonah threw himself into the sea of God's wrath and judgment for his own sin to turn away God's judgment from his companions. Jesus throws himself into the sea of God's judgment, not for his own sin, but for whose? For ours on the cross. So that we might be delivered from the judgment and wrath of God that we all rightly deserve. That's the hope of the gospel. This is why it is important for us to speak to the world and to remind ourselves of what we were delivered from and what is coming upon the world if they do not repent of their sins and turn to Christ for forgiveness. There is only one Savior. There is only one who threw himself into God's judgment so that condemned sinners under that judgment might be redeemed. That's what our Lord did. And how do we know that that message is true? When Jonah went to Nineveh, part of the reason we, Nineveh, repented was because they saw him come out from this great fish and wash up on shore. And they thought, wow, God has showed him mercy. Let us listen. How do we know the gospel is true and that Christ is the Redeemer he says he is because Christ was risen from the dead after three days. How do we know that God will show us mercy through Jesus? Because Jesus is alive and he's well and he's living. And all those who place their faith in him alone can be redeemed. Is that good news? Beloved, that is the good news that we proclaim this morning. Christ is risen, and we are forgiven in him. Let's pray. Christ, we come before you this morning so grateful for the way that you have loved us, for the way, Holy Spirit, that you discipline us and correct us in the midst of our sin and rebellion. So grateful, Father, that you have provided a means of salvation for us that we could not have provided for ourselves. We know, O oh God, our Father, that we often are silent when we should speak. We know, O oh God, that it is hard to speak the truth in this world because we are fearful. But we pray, O oh God, that you would help to grant us boldness as your people. Help us never to be afraid of the storms of life that come about us. Help us never to be so fearful that we refuse to speak truth in the midst of lies. Help us not to live by the lies that the world gives to us, pretending that it is as they say it is. We know, O oh God, that you have given us your word, and your word is true, and it is enduring, and it is everlasting, and it will accomplish the purpose for which you have sent it to accomplish. And we know that you call sin, sin. 
and you don't hold back your judgment upon ungodliness and rebellion. But your word tells us that you will bring every sin to account, that you will judge every word that is spoken in ungodliness, and you will judge every behavior that is done in wickedness, and you will judge every rebellious deed that is done in your face, and you will judge every word that is spoken that is a lie, that there is nothing in this world that will escape your judgment. All things will be brought to account so that your name might be glorified and lifted high. We just thank you, O God, that you have shown us such mercy in Christ because we know, O oh God, that we are guilty of each and every one of those things. And we come before you this morning not because we have deserved mercy or because you are obligated to save us, but we come before you because we know that you are a God of mercy and compassion and you have made a way of salvation through your Son and our Savior. He has taken our judgment upon himself and he has paid the price for our sin in full. He's taken every one of our deeds and every one of our evil thoughts and he has paid the price for what we deserve from before you, a holy God. And you have confirmed that work to us by raising the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. And we believe, O oh God, that he is risen and we believe, O oh God, that we have life in his name. And we believe, O oh God, that through Christ alone, we are delivered from that judgment that is to come. And we thank you for it. We pray, O oh God, that if there is any here this morning who is currently under your judgment and who is awaiting that final breath in this life only to come before your throne, we pray that before they take that final breath, they might come to you for the forgiveness of their sin, that they might be delivered from the judgment to come, and that they might find peace in Christ. Would you do that, O oh God, we pray. All of these things we pray in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. <laughs>